Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. A quick note before the show begins. The audio from these podcasts mostly come from live video YouTube streams on my channel. They may vary in quality from show to show and reference visual content not described to you, the listener. I'm sorry about that. If you prefer video to go with this audio, head over to youtube.com backslash from us, F-R-U-M-E-S-S for the whole enchilada. Who doesn't like a whole enchilada anyway? Hey. What's going on? The wheel, it spins round and round. You spin me round, right, round. <laughs> like, what did the fidget spinner say to Jeff as he was broadcasting live to the internet? You spin me round, right, round, baby. Round, right. <laughs> oh, God. That is just too daddy. Dad. Oh, oh that was weird. That's too much of a dad e e like dad ish e dad e ish. What this is not working out. This sorry. Let's can we start over? Can we start over? I'm starting over. Starting over. What did the fidget spinner say to Jeff when he was broadcasting live to the internet? Oh crap! You spin me round, right round, like a record baby, round, right round. Dad joke. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. Putting it down. Sorry. I am so sorry about that. Let's start the show over one more time. Welcome. Tonight's show, we're talking about the Beatles. Love the Beatles. We've actually covered this topic twice before, once over the summer, and then I think again over the summer. But we are a mere 48 hours away from the world premiere of Get Back, a six-plus-hour, I'm reading in some places, as, as many as eight hours Eight hours of Beatles, of, of Beatles entertainment. I mean, I, I I shudder the thought. I don't shudder the thought. I welcome the thought. I relish the thought. So it's coming. It is coming. And, you know, it's coming on Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving happens to be my birthday. So this is the best birthday present that I've ever gotten from the Beatles or Peter Jackson. Yeah, Peter Jackson. Thank you, Peter Jackson. Thank you, Beatles, for this wonderful gift. I truly appreciate this present. And if you want to get me something for my birthday, all you got to do is subscribe to this channel, like this video, or leave a comment, or check out the Patreon, or buy a cup of coffee. Cheers to you no matter what. Hope you have a wonderful turkey day. Okay, goodbye. Um, so Peter Jackson spoke to Deadline. And Deadline's one of those, you know one of those Hollywood rags, I guess, you know, news news sites like the Hollywood Reporter, yada, yada, yada. Talked to Deadline uh, about his four-year obsession that led to Get Back, the documentary, and who really broke up the Beatles. Now, we've read previously that this documentary is not going to really feature any of the footage that's in the Let It Be documentary. For those of you who are not aware, there was a Let It Be documentary that came out in 1970, uh, about the break of the Beatles. That was all the footage that they used. All the remaining footage basically was locked away. I mean, any documentary, there's going to be a large shooting ratio, right? You might have, for every hour, you might have 100 hours of footage. In in, in this case, I mean, I guess, I don't know what the shooting ratio would be, but if the Let It Be documentary is, is 90 minutes long, there's 136 hours of audio and 56 hours of video so or of film so i guess that's a one to mm, 
I don't know. I'm not really good with fractions. 1 to 45, 1 to 56 ratio, something like that, which is uh, far about 50% of a 1 to 100 ratio if you're shooting a documentary. Pretty, 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 pretty uh, not selective, unselective, selective, selective. I don't know. I don't know what the hell I'm saying tonight. I just knew I wanted to cover this before the big day. So that's what we're doing right now. Let's take a look. Let's take a look at what PJ says in this interview. It's not quite, and I know what the obsession he's going to talk about. It's actually a beautiful story. I think this is a really beautiful story. We're going to get there. We're going to get there, folks. Let's do it. Uh, It's not quite as arduous as, by the way, this is written by Mike Fleming Jr. And it's from Deadline. It's not quite as arduous as hobbits venturing to Mordor to destroy Sauron's ring, but Peter Jackson's immersed himself for four years to bring to life the end of the long and winding road of the Beatles. The result is the seven hours. And now here they're saying seven hours. So we've heard six hours. We've heard seven hours. I've even heard eight hours. The seven hour, the Beatles get back, which by the way, had a rough cut running time of 18 hours. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? It was originally supposed to be a two-hour film. They decided to make it a six-hour miniseries on Disney+. Plus. Thank the Lords for that one. I mean, could you imagine if we had just gotten a two-hour movie? Hey, who knows? Maybe we'll find it all boring. Maybe it'll just be the Beatles the whole time. Uh, all of it was shot in 1969. Not only was it... Hold on, wait, wait, wait. Hold on a second. Let's get back here. Uh, which Jackson called and restored from 60 hours of studio sessions. It's actually 56 hours. Uh, and a rooftop concert, which was 42 minutes long and only covers seven songs of the 14 songs on Let It Be because they hadn't recorded all of the songs yet. Um, all of this was shot in January of 1969 by Michael Lindsay Hogg, uh, the illegitimate son of Orson Welles, for those of you who did not know, for his film Let It Be at a time when Apple forbade him from including much that created understanding and context of the group's creative process and difficulties that led to estrangement and breakup. A fan of the hits from John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr, since he was a pint-sized Kiwi, Jackson used the technical cleanup process that breathed life into his World War I documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old, to make it seem like you are watching live footage. I think when they say to make it seem like you're watching live footage, what they really mean to say is, to make it seem like you're watching live footage from like yesterday. You know what I mean? Yesterday. The film will be shown in three parts on Disney plus from November 25th, my birthday to November. Yeah. I'm one of, (laughs) you know, I sound like right now, you know, one of those girls is just like, it's my birthday for a week. (laughs) It was like, it was like, you know, it's like birthday month, you know? And if you don't attend every single birthday event for birthday month, then you are a bad friend. Um, those are terrible people. Uh, I'll stop bringing that up. No, no, no. Uh, I mean, this is really cool. You know what this kind of reminds me of? I remember, you know, when I first got into the Beatles in say 1994, I was young and that was right around the time of the anthology and the re- the reunion of the three dolls, as they were called without John Lennon to record the, an- the two new anthology tracks. We got free as a bird and then real love later, later on. Um, and the big event, it was huge. I remember this being so big, even as a kid, uh, the Beatles anthology project, it was five 90 minute. I think it was either hour long or 90 minute long, 
uh, documentary segments that premiered on ABC Channel 7. And it was huge. I mean, just so big. People loved watching this. I, you know, I had the box set. I watched it over and over and over again. Frankly, I should really be brushing up and watching it now uh, just to sort of wet my beak a little bit before uh, launching into um, this. Because you know what happens once you immerse yourself in something like get back, you just you're going to I'm going to be on a Beatles kick. I'm going to be just going through through all that jazz and I might as well just prep for it now. Uh, I'm really, really excited, though. And I do feel that same sort of anticipation that we got in the 90s with the Beatles anthology. So it really does kind of um, it, it really does uh, got me stoked. Here he explains the monumental task and divulges who really broke up the band. Contrary to the legend, contrary, contrary to the legend, it was not Yoko. You know, that's not entirely true. Yoko Ono was a factor in the fraction of the Beatles. Why? Why is the, why do people blame Yoko in the first place? And it's it's wrong to entirely blame Yoko. But why do people bl blame Yoko in the first place? They blame her because they think that she was, you know, she drove a wedge between the three Beatles and John. And that in turn made the Beatles split. But it's a it's way more complicated than that. Rue, see, here's Rue. Rue is saying, I love Lennon, but Yoko killed them. Here's the thing. So here's the thing, Rue. Yoko was definitely Yoko pulled John away from the other Beatles, but John was already looking to get away from the other Beatles. He was waiting for an impetus. It wasn't, and you know who they're saying, you know, they're about to say here now who really broke up the Beatles or, you know, the answer is, the answer truly, it, truly in truth is John Lennon. John Lennon, and I know Paul's been making the rounds saying that, like, you know, they, these guys love to revise history and whatnot. There were many factors that led to the breakup of the Beatles. Really, if you really want to get it started, what really began the breakup of the Beatles was their um, fatigue from touring and the death of their manager, Brian Epstein, in 1967. That was the that was the death blow that 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 slowly. So they were doing their, their most, you know, uh, impactful work as they were slowly disintegrating over a three year period. And then Yoko comes into the picture. She comes into the picture about 1966, 1967 and starts trying to break up. She's kind of actively breaking up or trying to break up. John Lennon's marriage from Cynthia. However, John Lennon was cheating on Cynthia nonstop. There was nothing really to break up because John Lennon was already broken up from her. He, John Lennon was a deeply flawed uh, person who was looking for a way out of his situation. He was sort of boxed in or boxed out by Paul McCartney's prolific and competitive drive to be a songwriter because, you know, they started off writing songs together, but eventually they stopped. Eventually, they sort of were writing songs on their on their own. And so Lennon meets Yoko, and then all of a sudden it becomes clear, this is my future, this is my partner, this is where I want to be. To blame Yoko for that, I think, is wrong. We can't blame her for that. We have to blame John Lennon. I mean, not even blame John Lennon. It's just, that's just the way things unraveled, you know? Then you have George Harrison. He's becoming a prolific songwriter and like this incredible songwriter he's writing all these songs and he's getting as good as his 
his his bandmates who who sort of you know schooled him on the tutelage you know tutelaged him uh in the art of songwriting and whatnot even though but you know george harrison had written a song as far back as 1963 it don't bother me you know what i'm saying um on revolver he had three songs dagger love says misfits are better than the beatles that's fine dagger but you know what we're discussing tonight we are discussing the beatles so you could take the misfits and put them on the shelf for tonight sorry um so you you know it's really there's like all these different things that are sort of splitting everything up you know what i mean it's not just yoko um did yoko sort of you know uh like you know amplify things from everything that i've read yes like amplify like the 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 tension absolutely but it's you know nobody gives john enough credit here for being the wedge himself they all point to yoko um rue says seems to me that yoko supported his bad ideas cheating and not respecting the beatles as a family of their own interesting i mean that's definitely one way to put it i can't you know rue does sort of break that i mean he does make a good point there she does she did support bad ideas i think she supported all of his ideas i think that john found a mother figure in yoko that he didn't find in cynthia that he that he had in in mimi his aunt but that he never got you know he had like this like you know wayward mother complex you know cynthia was never the mother that he was looking for in his life but yoko was right so she is sort of giving him and and you know again paul who's always kind of like leading things from the back even though john's supposed to be like the leader of the beatles it's really like paul who's kind of like pulling the strings behind the scenes you know and kind of like leading from behind and then all of a sudden john gets a backbone again because he has yoko in his corner giving him that backbone but i think it's i think like to give yoko as much credit as rue is giving her and as much credit as maybe i'm giving her is to say that john lennon was like what was he just like a mindless like dope who like just didn't know anything i mean he was he was a dude who was doing his own thing at the end of the day and i'm sure and like i said peter jackson is going to say this later on at the end of the day it was him in that meeting in September of 1969 who said, you're daft, I want a divorce. He wanted out. He finally wanted out. He finally, and and you know, it was interesting too. It seemed to be one of those things where, you know, every other day, John Lennon was kind of changing his mind. But they were, the rift was there, man. It had been there and it had been forming and it was time man it, it was time for the thing to end and here's the thing most of all two things i want to say before we move on thing number one um when people compare the beatles and the stones and the stones are great they're all in their own right i love the stones but just remember one thing about the stones and the beatles the beatles were together for 10 years and they recorded and did all the shit that they did in seven years okay they did all that stuff they conquered the world they made films everything all that stuff happened seven years the stones have been playing for 60 years and they are still trying to step out of the shadow of the beatles 60 years versus seven years just remember that folks just remember that the other thing i want to say look the rhythm section of the beatles is still alive the 
the front man section of the Stones is still alive. You have Keith, Mick Jagger, and friggin' Ron Wood, and you have Ringo Starr, and you have Paul McCartney. The Stones don't have a bass player or a drummer. Well, they do, but they they lost their you know members. They lost Billy Wyman in ninety three, and we uh, in nineteen ninety three, and we just you know Charlie Watts, one of the greatest rock and roll drummers of all time, just passed away. Why don't these guys get together and form a super group? Wouldn't that be fun if they recorded an album? You know, the Beatles and the Stones finally uniting. 60 years of a rivalry. You know, they start their, you know, the Stones really start their career with the Beatles in terms of getting a number one hit because Paul McCartney and John Lennon wrote their first number one hit. You didn't know that, did you? It's called I Wanna Be Your Man. And guess who friggin' sung it? Guess who the Beatles gave that song to Ringo? So Mick Jagger's like, mm, my number one hit. Mm. <laughs> and they're like, let's give that one to Ringo. Yeah, he can sing that one. I just think that's really funny. Um, Dagger says, I was just looking at Beatles boots to buy, but the heel isn't high enough. Dude, I love me Beatle boots, man. The Cuban with the Cuban heel, Dagger. Those are really, really cool. Really, really cool boots. I wish those would kind of come back into fashion. They're, I feel like that's like not like a, a, a current trend, but it should be. It's really, really great. Really, really great. Uh, the, it's the key. The key is the heel. Yeah, David Lee in the chat. It was time for it to end. Their debut albums were insanely good. They went out on a great note. They didn't fizzle out. It's uh, 150 billion percent, David. You could not be more right on that. All four of those solo albums were ginormous. And in in just about every one of those cases, they never, none of them ever lived those solo albums down. Though They, they were chasing the dragon of those 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 first four solo albums. John George Harrison never did anything as great as All Things Must Pass. I think Plastic Ono Band is John Lennon's best cohesive solo album period. Ringo, he was the first one to get a number one hit. And P McCartney by Paul McCartney, one of his best albums he's ever put out. You know, I mean, those guys, I mean, you could say Paul McCartney still had, you know, Band on the Run is, is a phenomenal record. And some people love Ram, which they call uh, Sergeant Paul actually all right let's read on because we're just gonna go we can i can literally for as much as i can talk about the misfits i can talk about the beatles just as much if not more okay deadline asks peter jackson remember this is an interview with peter jackson where were you in your life when you discovered the beatles and what did they mean to you Peter Jackson says, I was only a child and grew up in the 60s. I was born in 61 and so uh, was alive all the way through the time they released their albums. We had a gramophone thing and my parents had a soundtrack album, South Pacific and Camelot. And mom was a bit of an Engelbert and Humperdick fan. I must have liked them on radio and television. My first real encounter with them was I'd saved pocket money when I was 12 or 13. I was going to the city to buy a model airplane that I had my eye on and saved for. I passed the record shop on my way to the mall and there was a window display for the two albums, the compilation album that they put together in the early 70s, one red and one blue. I stopped dead in my tracks. I had never seen those two photos side by side them staring over the balcony real quick these were two packages that were put together by alan klein another huge factor another big factor for the beatles splitting up alan klein versus lee eastman the beatles in light of 
Brian Epstein dying in 67 were without management. They had formed a company called Apple Corps, Apple Corps, whatever you want to call it, the Apple, Apple company. Uh, they were doing all sorts of stuff. They didn't have anybody really managing their affairs. In comes Alan Klein. What you, where you may hear, have heard that name before, or th that name, you, that name might be familiar to you. That's what I meant to say. That name might be familiar to you because Alan Klein had worked with the Rolling Stones and he had fucked the Rolling Stones really, really bad, really, really bad. I don't even, I don't know the details as to how he, he, he screwed them over, but he screwed the Stones over bad. And I think the Stones might've even said, watch out for Alan Klein. In any case, Alan Klein got into John Lennon's ear. You hear that rude? John Lennon's ear. And told, whispered a bunch of things to him and got Yoko on board and got George Harrison on board and got Ringo Starr on board. All three of them were on board to use Alan Klein. The only person that held out was Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney was like, I don't trust that snake. I don't want anything to do with Alan Klein. Let's go with my father-in-law. Paul was marrying Linda Eastman. Her dad, Lee Eastman, was a lawyer who actually was the guy who, who told Paul, you know, Paul had about $7 million at the end of the Beatles, which, you know, you'd think, wow, they're Beatles. Like, they must have hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Eventually, they would. But at the end of the Beatles, $7 million, even in by 60 standards, considering what the Beatles earned, was not that much money for everything that they had done, Right. Um, but Paul McCartney invested that $7 million in, in, in licensing catalogs, publishing catalogs, like, uh, Buddy Holly songs and stuff, and basically turned into a global music empire known as MPL communications today. He's the richest musician in the world. He's worth over a billion dollars, right? There's no musician who is richer than Paul McCartney. I mean, he is the goat. He is the goat. Um, the reason why I bring that up is because it was Lee Eastman who gave him that advice. He he wanted Lee Eastman to to uh, to manage the Beatles, and so you had a three against one split in a group that was democratic all the way. Where if it wasn't four, you know, four uh, didn't all agree, then they didn't do something. So you have this massive, massive, massive rift on the business side. That's why. When people are saying, oh, like everything was so like happy with like, you know, let it be like we think of let it be as this really bad time. I mean, times were strained. It was deaf. There was definitely a strain and it only increased after let it be, you know, as as one as they will recount, George Harrison quit in the middle of the let it be sessions because he got into a fist fight with John Lennon over the things that he was saying about Yoko, you know, um, so. Like you definitely, you, you definitely have like, you, you have this crazy situation, uh, sort of forming with, you know, the money side of things. So even though it may have been har harmonious when they're trying to like sort of make music in front of all these cameras at the same time, and I believe me, I think that's all revisionist history at the same time, there is a war like brewing. And maybe it hasn't fully erupted yet. I don't know the exact timeline on that. And I'm not going to like speak to it with any kind of authority because I actually don't know. But I'm telling you, man, that shit was that shit was was crazy. That was like it was a civil war. It was a civil war. We got crazy white boy in the house. How you doing? Um, 
Rue agrees with Dave's point. I, yeah, I agree with Dave's point, too. Alan Klein was one of the first fuckhead managers. D. Anthony comes very close. Who did D. Anthony represent? I'm not familiar with that guy. But yes, Alan Klein was a, was a bad dude. And eventually, Paul did sign. I think he eventually caved and he did sign. And then what happened was, Paul had to sue the other three Beatles in 1972, I think it was, to in order to dissolve their partnership because it, everything had just gone to crap. He had promised them, like, you know, greater royalties. And you know what happened? When the band did break up because, you know, uh, Lennon said, I'm out of here, Alan Klein begged him. He said, please, please, please don't say anything. We're trying to to, to ink these deals and, and you know, uh, renegotiate royalties. And if you do that, that is like, that is a bad faith thing. So when Peter Jackson talks about this compilation, this is one of the things that Alan Klein, one of the great things that Alan Klein did do. He put together what is known as the Red Album and the Blue Album. And yes, it features a... Uh, the, the 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 picture that they took in 1963 that was the cover for Please Please Me. And then they sort of bookended their career seven years later with the same photograph with the Abbey Road era Beatles. Really cool sort of, um, you know, uh, what you call it? bookend, way to bookend uh, the, the Beatles, right? But that is, that was the deal with the, the compilation album and, and Alan Klein and why it was, that was a monumental release. So many people learned about the Beatles from those albums. That's how I was first exposed to the Beatles. I had the white album and I had the red album in 1994. That was my first exposure to the Beatles changed my life. And he stopped. So Peter says he stopped dead in his tracks. I had never seen those two photos side by side, them staring over the balcony. I went inside. I recognized some of the songs and I blew all my pocket money on the two albums. What a great investment. He says, I still haven't bought that plane, but I had two Beatles albums. I played them at home, especially when my parents weren't around and I slowly bought all the other albums. And that's how it began for me. Whew. That's great. Um, David Lee Rath says, D. Anthony was a manager for tons of people. He stiffed Peter Frampton and Humble Pie, but that's a conversation for another time. Thank you. Yes, a conversation for another time indeed, but thank you for letting us know who he was. Um, Deadline says, asks, the Beatles mythology had been picked over in a myriad of books and films. What convinced you that there was enough there was enough new to make it worth your wild and ours. I mean, I think that answer is obvious without even <laughs> Peter's going to, Peter's going to answer in a second, but I mean, hello, 132 hours of audio and 56 hours of video. Of course, there's something in there for us to see. There's some sort of revelation. We haven't heard all of it yet, even though we've heard a lot of it and a lot of it has leaked out. We haven't heard all of it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Jackson says, there was obviously enough footage to do incredible things. I just wanted to look at all the footage because of the reputation of the period in the Beatles' careers, the so-called Let It Be period. It was considered the breakup album. Um, I mean, I guess Abbey Road is really the breakup album, and they had started breaking up as early as the White Album. Um, so, I mean, yes, the, the Let It 
as as uh what's his face from the 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 beatles podcast says it was the winter of discontent and this let it be period really only lasts for january of 1969 because by february they were already recording abbey road they had basically started over on a new album that had used songs or that took songs from that rehearsal period when they were doing the let it be sessions and you know slowly refined that material songs like octopus's garden and maxwell's silver hammer I want you. She's so heavy. Come together. Those songs find their way. Even songs like Teddy Boy, Junk, All Things Must Pass. These songs eventually find their way onto Beatles solos. There are some people out there that want to decree that there is a there's a lost Beatles album within those first Beatles solo albums because that material, which was written while they were still in the Beatles and released as solo output you know, theoretically could almost be like a white album part two when you think about it. It was considered the breakup album. I wanted to look at the footage. If it had been all miserable arguments and fighting, if it was all the stuff Michael Lindsay Hogg was not allowed to put in his movie i thought my god what horrors am i going to be seeing here so here's so there you go there is that right there answers the big question of how paul and ringo and and peter jackson everybody are trying to sort of revise history here and tell us oh it wasn't so bad because he says it right here like you know i thought i was gonna watch 56 hours of miserable arguments and fighting Obviously, it wasn't all miserable arguments and fighting. They were rehearsing material. But make no mistake, it was not a good time. But that's not what Paul McCartney or Ringo Starr, who are in the who are in the twilight of their lives, they don't want you. I've been saying this since the summer. They don't want you to think any period was negative, or they want you to look at a negative, sad time uh, with some kind of positivity. You know, because they're, you know, they won't be around forever. And this is them sort of locking down and securing their legacy in the process. So, you know, I I get it. I understand what the motivations are behind it. But, you know, it's not so, it, it, it can't be as sanitized as it is. Deadline says, what did you find? Jackson says the exact opposite. I, I don't think that's, that's not a big revelation, man. At, this is not a revelation here. He says it right here. It's no mystery. Really? The breakup and Michael's movie happened in 1970. This was shot in January 69. So already Peter Jackson's full of shit here. And I love you, Peter Jackson. I love you. God bless you, Peter Jackson. And all the things that you do, you will. I, I, I idolize Peter, Peter Jackson. I worship this man, but he's full of shit right now. He says he's trying to make it sound like this happened a year before the Beatles broke up. She said, so it was filmed 15 months before. So the Beatles officially broke up in May of 1970 when Paul McCartney released McCartney. And he did this sort of like little like press release thing in which he finally admitted that the Beatles had broken up. He was the last one to leave the group. The first person to leave the group was Ringo during the White Album. Ringo had quit during the White Album. He didn't like the way that Paul was telling him to drum on songs. So he walked off. Paul ended up drumming on Dear Prudence, uh, Prudence and back in the USSR. Uh, and then Ringo came back. The next person to leave was George Harrison. George Harrison walked out of the group, as we're going to see on 
on November 25th when um, he got into a fist fight with John Lennon in the cafeteria. I don't know if they're going to show the fist fight, but there was a fight between John Lennon and George Harrison. And then it was John's turn. John left the group in September. He finally had decided, even though they were literally proposing what they were going to do next after Abbey Road, John had decided, that's it. I'm done. I'm over. He says to Paul in the meeting, you're daft. Paul wants to go and play small clubs, not even build necessarily as the Beatles. And he goes, you're daft. I want a divorce. And for the last, for the winter of ni- of 69, the Beatles are no more. Everything is inactive. They're, they're doing nothing. The three Beatles, uh, Paul, George, and Ringo, the Threedles, they reconvene without John Lennon in January of 1970 to continue recording tracks for the Let It Be project. That's right. Songs like I Me Mine don't get tracked until January of 1970, over a year later. Why is a song like I Me Mine getting tracked? We've talked about this already because John and Yoko do a waltz on footage that Michael Lindsay Hogg had shot um, while they're trying to rehearse George's song. Why? Because John didn't give a shit about George's songs. He hated George's songs. Didn't hate them, but he just didn't want to, he didn't want to be on them. He didn't care about them. He only liked to do his songs. And so when they're trying to rehearse I Me Mine, John and Yoko start doing this waltz, like this passive aggressive waltz dancing. And because it it's just a, a nice clip, you know, it made for like a, a nice piece of footage, they needed to include the song on the soundtrack. So they ended up, tracking a song that they had no intention of putting on the let it be soundtrack so what does that tell you i mean it was not all you know gumdrops and roses here i mean again this is the end of the band right they're just trying to they're, they're trying they're doing such a spin job right now I mean, if this was true, if Jackson really wanted to tell the truth right now, he would say this is shot in January of 1969 and the band broke up in September of 1969. You know what I'm saying? Um, Michael made his film from from exactly the footage that I did. I had 60 hours of footage and 130 hours of audio. It was a big job that has taken me four years. Wow. At the end of January, Michael disappears the footage and he has to edit his film. The Beatles don't want to release the album until the film comes out side by side. The Beatles, while they were waiting for the film to appear, they do the Abbey Road album, which comes out later, which comes out later. And soon after Abbey Road, they break up. Unfortunately for Michael, terrible timing. His film got this breakup rush unfairly plastered all over it. I've seen Let It Be in recent times. It's not a breakup film. Human psychology being what it is, everyone projected the the breaking up they were reading in newspapers and headlines onto his film. It didn't do the film any good at all. Seeing the original footage, it's got drama. It's not all play. They set out to achieve a project involving a long journey. It goes off the rails. It gets pear-shaped. And they try to figure out what to do. On the other hand, the best drama comes from things going wrong. I'm fortunate as a storyteller that there that the, that it wasn't all smooth sailing. Otherwise, the film would have been a lot more boring than it turned out. There were crises, and those show who the Beatles really are. What better way to reveal who people really are 
than what they have to deal with. Uh, crazy is a very, sorry, what better way to reveal who people really are than when, than when they have to deal with crazies of various sorts. And that's what you see here. I mean, that, okay, that, that, that sounded a lot more real to me than the, the beginning part of what he was saying. What's up? We have Walter White down in New Zealand where Peter Jackson resides. We're broadcasting from Weta Works right now, which Peter Jackson just sold for $1.6 billion. Congratulations to Peter Jackson. David Lee says, Paul was attacked with really great songs. Yes, Wawa was written. I believe Wawa was written when when Paul had, uh, when George had left the band. And How Do You Sleep was written in 1972, which was a response song to Paul's song that had he had written called too many people. So what happened was you have Wawa that came out about Paul. Then Paul wrote too many people about uh, John. And then John wrote, how do you sleep? And he got George to play slide guitar on it just for that extra, you know, that extra dagger in the side. And then Paul recorded, let me roll it as a response. But, but that was like a peace offering. Let me roll. It was a peace offering to John. Um, and yes, it was, they were diss tracks before they were cool. You're, it, that is true. Um, so this bottom part of this paragraph is definitely feels more real to me than this, this top part here. This feels like just politicking, you know, so it was filmed 15 mi- months before. I don't know, man. I, again, and, and you know, where, where, where do I, you know, where do I qualify in this in comparison of someone like Peter Jackson, who not only knows the Beatles, but worked with all this footage and stuff like I, I'm just a guy who's read a lot of Beatle books. That's it. Literally, it. I've read a lot of different points of views. I've listened to a lot of podcasts from people that knew the Beatles and whatnot, and I have just formed my own opinions based on just the countless meticulous hours of podcast audio and sort of um, just all the text that I've read. And it just, this, this, this feels like, here's the thing. This just feels like such a right turn from everything. You know what I mean? And it just, and because it's coming from Paul and Ringo, it just feels revisionist. And they are, they, they, they do this sort of stuff. This is what they did. The Beatles anthology was revisionist as well. You know what I mean? Um, that's just kind of how they, that's kind of how they, they roll. They're, they're thinking about their legacy. I don't, as I said, I don't, I don't blame them. I don't, um, I'm not, it's not, I understand. I understand their motivations. Deadline asks, was there some exceptional surprise that hit you and made you, uh, and made you have to tell the story? Jackson says, not initially, because it was the culmination of 60 hours that you don't really uh, and you don't really know what the story is. You look at it and it's 60 hours of incredible stuff. We had to dig in and find the story. Yeah, it's like a block of clay. It's like a block of marble. You got to sculpt it out until you find the story in there. The story is usually contained in scripts. And this was real life. And it's period. And it's a period not very accurately written about. It's got a notorious reputation, which is actually false. I mean, at the at bottom line, at the end of the day, we have to watch the footage. We have to see what 
what how he presents it and you know judge it for ourselves and even then it won't be accurate because we're not seeing all the footage we're only seeing you know like what like like 10 percent, like 20 percent of the about 20 percent 15 18 percent of the footage you know um it's got a notorious reputation which is actually false it's hard to find an accurate account i had to eavesdrop and make my own determination uh, what was the story and show it day by day. It's 22 days Michael filmed the entirety of what was called the Get, Pro Get Back Project, which then became Let It Be 15 months later. And that's a very good point that Peter Jackson is making. When this, this is not, calling it Get Back is calling it by its real name. Let It Be is how it was repackaged in 1970. Originally, Paul McCartney had this notion. What is get back? It means get back to who you were. Let's get back to who we were. Let's go back to playing shows. So we're going to start by sort of rehearsing this material, getting it into shape, and uh, basically um, uh, debuting uh, brand new songs uh, that no one has ever heard before in a, in a live setting, right? That's the idea of getting back. You know, and that, and then when that broke down, that material was then shaped into the Let It Be documentary as well as the Let It Be album, which, you know, again, you can hear Paul McCartney, who was, again, you know, tried to sort of revise history by releasing Let It Be Naked. Phil Spector got a hold of the tapes which John Lennon never, you know, always wrote off as just dreck. He he never was happy with the Let It Be material. He always thought it was crap. He dumped the tapes in Spectre's lap and he said, do something with this. And he and Spectre, you know, he Phil Spectre, he put on his wall of sound, which made Paul really mad, especially on the long and winding road. And they, they released Let It Be Naked to sort of, uh, you know, uh, revise what what had been. Um. So yeah, that is true, man. It was called the Let It Be Project and it became Let It... Or no, it was called the Get Back Project and it became Let It Be 15 months later. I wanted the audience to experience it like the Beatles did. They did something on a Tuesday not knowing not knowing it was all going wrong on Thursday. We are very much living their experience alongside them. That's ultimately the film I ended up making. That sounds fascinating. It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be good. You can't deny that it's not going to be good. It's going to be great. It's, but, but, you know, is it going to be revisionist? Yes, it's going to be revisionist. It has to be. Um, Deadline says, what connective tissue? At the same time, isn't all documentary, you know, revisionist in some way, shape, or form? Um, what connective tissue did you find between the process that your creative team goes through in mounting big movies and what you observed the Beatles going through as they created from scratch what would become a classic album? Jackson says, it's friendship and trust. I've often thought that when we write the scripts, I've done with Fran Walsh, F Fran is his wife, and Phil Philippa, Phil Philippa, is that how you pronounce that? Boyens. I mean, I've seen that name a whole bunch and never said it out loud. You get to a point where you don't have to tiptoe around people's feelings or ego. You're just three people. And if one comes up with a, an idea that's not very good, you can just say that it's not going to work and you move on. 
The other thing is, it's great when there's three people, and in this case, four Beatles. If somebody gets stuck, somebody else will have an idea. It might not be the right one, but it can spark another idea. You very much see the same thing on screen with the Beatles. It's very much the same deal. Deadlines asks, what was the most powerful, sorry, what was the most helpful observation you got from either Paul McCartney or Ringo Starr, the two surviving Beatle members? Uh, Jackson says, one comment from Paul that I was happy to hear. I wasn't there and I had to do a lot of compressing. I could have skewed it one way or the other. And when Paul saw it, he said, yeah, you captured exactly who we were at the time of our, at that time of our lives. He recognized his three mates and he had no issues with the way I ended up showing them, which I tried to do with the utmost honesty. I didn't muck around or do any silly tricks to make anyone look different from who they were at that time. Deadline asks, and remember, this footage was an albatross around the Beatles' neck. I mean, this was a treasure trove of footage that has sat gathering cobwebs for friggin' 50 years. Nobody was, nobody could look or play or do anything with this material. You know, they they actively saw it. They kept, you know, let it be from coming out on Blu-ray or DVD for that matter. They just think this was a, this was a part that they didn't want people to see about the Beatles. This was something that was sort of stifled over the years. So it's like, it's kind of, it's kind of incredible to think all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're at the end of the line here in some way, shape or form. And, you know, we want to leave this material in a really good place. Let's open the vault and, and dive in and, and see what, you know, what is there 50 years later. Think about that 50 years half a century later it's crazy deadline says uh, wh uh what was it like for them to watch what you did john was taken from them abruptly and george is also gone were they emotional jackson says paul said something interesting in the end they got up on the roof to perform the three in the front row and ringo behind them he said something i hadn't thought about he said when I was performing with the Beatles, John was beside me, but I couldn't study the others. I can now watch how John played, how his fingers moved. I can study how Ringo, I can study how Ringo, uh, sorry, I can study how George and, blah, sorry, I am like not reading this right. I can study how George, what is that? That's not written properly. I can now watch how John played, how his fingers moved. I can study how George and C. Ringo play. That doesn't make any sense, which he couldn't because Ringo was in the back. He loved watching his bandmates do their thing. I can study how George and C. Ringo play. Huh. Even though he played hundreds of hours with those guys, he couldn't see what they were doing. Interesting, because you're always facing the front. In the footage I saw, Yoko Ono is omnipresent. Okay, I don't know if Rue's still here. Here's the Yoko Ono question. She is quiet, but always by John Lennon's side. They were inseparable. The rest seemed to accept her being there. They didn't talk to her much. What did she bring John that helped him? Uh, we always hear Yoko broke up the band. What do you think? Jackson says, Yoko didn't break up the band. The band broke up over disagreements with Alan Klein coming in to run their business affairs, which Paul didn't agree with. There you go. And, you know, there is footage, and we'll probably see it in the thing, where, where Paul 
is, you know, I don't know what you got to find the there's audio there's audio of it where Paul talks about how much he has just accepted Yoko and John's relationship. And by the way, here's something that'll really sort of melt your mind. I read one book called You Never Give Me Your Money by uh, Pete Doggett, I think his name is. This book begins in 1969 and it goes all the way through uh, John Lennon and George Harrison's death. So basically what it's about is all the times the Beatles tried to reunite in the 70s and all of the turmoil and the breakup of the Beatles. It is absolutely the most fascinating book I've ever read about the Beatles. And it, man, there is one, it's the only place I've ever seen it. It's the only time, it's just a footnote. But this dude says basically with a giant grain of salt that he believes, or that I forgot who says it, that it was Paul who slept with Yoko Ono first, way before John did, because she showed up at Paul's doorstep first. And back then when Paul was a, you know, red-blooded, you know, swinging dick bachelor who just lay any bird he got his hands on. Friggin' Yoko was there. Yoko wanted to bag herself a beetle. And so this author basically, this author basically implies that Paul and Yoko had slept together before John and Yoko had ever gotten together, which is a whole other just sort of mind boggling thing that is it true who knows but it just sort of really adds so many layers to <laughs> to to john lennon in his relationships you know um he was he was switching creative partners going from paul to yoko i mean he created art with yoko for the next 12 years of his life for the last 12 years of his life um, but this is, I man, this is the truth. The band broke up over disagreements with Alan Klein. That was the final death. That was the final, you know, death nail in the coffin of many death nails. Okay. Uh, you know, Rue, Rue says that's fucking crazy. I'm going to find the book. The book is upstairs. I'm going to find that book and I am going to read that excerpt. I will read the excerpt here on YouTube. We'll do, we'll do a, a sort of uh, like a clip a clip video about it. If I really had, uh, if I was feeling froggy, I'd run upstairs and get it real quick, but I don't want to just leave the, the dead air for so long. Um, what else does he say? Uh, the Beatles were always a band who always had a hard and fast rule. That's four votes or it doesn't happen, which is what we just talked about earlier. It complete democracy. If all four weren't in it, weren't in agreement, it would not occur. It had to be unanimous. For the first time in the history of the Beatles, it was three votes to one. John, George, and Ringo wanted to bring in Alan Klein to run their business affairs, and Paul didn't. And they said, well, Paul, Alan Klein is coming in because we are three votes and you are one vote. Paul tried to make it work, and so did they, but it drove a wedge between them, and that's why the band broke up. It had nothing to do with Yoko. It, it definitely, look, it definitely had something to do with Yoko, but Yoko is a factor just the way that Alan Klein is a factor. These are all factors. It was no one thing, you, but most certainly you cannot blame Yoko as the sole reason for breaking up of the Beatles. 
Um, and here's the thing. If you really want to view Yoko as the bad guy, you got to go listen to something about the Beatles. This podcast, they really demonize the crap out of Yoko. They hate Yoko. And they really paint this devious, manipulative picture of Yoko just sort of getting her succubus-like claws into John Lennon and never letting go. You know, from, you know, having a bed put into the studio to wanting the microphone and being super annoying. You see that footage with her playing with Chuck Berry and, and John Lennon in the 70s and, John, and Chuck Berry's like, what the fuck is going on? You know, that kind of thing. It's crazy. Uh, Rue, it's absolutely worth uh, checking out. I'll send you the information if you want it, man. It's it is it is some read like, you know, if you like salacious reads, this is salacious as it gets. I mean, truly, truly, truly. Um, Rue, I didn't know you were into the Beatles like that. Um, that's awesome. Yoko comes in and doesn't interfere. She doesn't express opinions. She most certainly expressed opinions, but she expressed them to John and John alone. And she'd whisper in his ear. She'd whisper in his ear stuff like to like bolster his ego. Like you're, you could do that, John, or the, you know, like that kind of thing. You know, she was, she was doing all sorts of stuff, but she is not, you again, you cannot, you cannot like put the full blame on Yoko, no matter how much it seems like you should. Uh, yeah, that, that, that perform that Chuck Berry performance is, is ridiculous, ridiculous. Um, there's, there's no other complicating factor for it. John has to go work and disappear for 12 hours and doesn't want to disappear from her. So she comes and sits beside him. It's love. It's love, but it's also heroin. They're also on heroin at this time together. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of stuff. And he is in this deep, like committed, loving, uh, you know, intoxicating, unhealthy, codependent relationship with someone who, you know, gives him all of the feelings that he never got from his mother like uh, the the ultimate security blanket, you know what I mean? Um, and you know, in this honeymoon period of infatuation where Yoko doesn't leave John's side, even when it means going into the studio, which is a sacred space for the Beatles. You never bring anybody into the, the studio. No, no wives, no girlfriends. It's just the Beatles or whatever, that kind of thing. The Beatles and their roadies, Mal Evans, yada, yada, yada. Um, it's love, nothing more complicated than that. She's very respectful. She doesn't talk to them because engaging would take their minds off the job. Again, that's not entirely true either. Yoko definitely, uh, you know, inserted herself in, in all sorts of Beatles mechanics. And in the final photo session, she's taking pictures with the Beatles. That's right. She's actually there taking pictures with the Beatles. Who knows what it would, what it would have been if they had kept carrying on for another year or two, if they had kept limping on, would John Lennon have threatened to leave? And if if not for Yoko Ono coming in there and going, yeah, you know, like that that whole friggin' screeching thing, you know what I'm saying? <clears throat> Which probably would fit in very well with a piece like Revolution Number Nine. Remember, remember, you know, you're talking about like passive aggression in the Beatles. Like, they're not letting George Harrison's songs come on. And when they do, like, for instance, they recorded a hundred and how many takes of Not Guilty? It's either not, yeah, it's Not Guilty for the White Album. They leave it off and then they put on a nine-minute avant-garde piece called Revolver Revolution Number no. 9. 
okay? You're telling me you couldn't have five minutes of revolution number nine and then give that extra five minutes to George Harrison for his song that's actually a song called Not Guilty? I mean, it's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. That that to me is a ginormous fuck you. The, the, and the dynamics, the interdynamics, Paul is bossy and controlling. John doesn't care about George's songs, but George and John will team up against Paul you know, over different stuff. Like, I mean, there's all sorts of craziness going. And then you have Ringo, who's like the glue that's, he's friends with everybody, kind of holding everything together. It's a whole thing, man. It's a whole friggin' thing. Um, she doesn't talk to them because engaging with them would take, off, take their minds off the job at hand. I think that's a, that's a bullshit statement. Uh, once she starts to chat with them, it's a disruptive force and she's very respectful. She sits there, she knits, she reads books, because they are focused on their work and they do not talk with her, but she's just in love with John and she's very respectful. And no, the reality is, is that Yoko Ono is still alive and she has, um, a, you know, a controlling interest in this film and politically, politically she, you know, Peter Jackson is crossing all of his T's and dotting all of his I's, and you can't blame the guy for doing so. And her telling Paul to speed up the solo or give George advice, that's not who she is and was. That's what I gleaned from the footage. Bull fucking shit. Um, Deadline asked him about They Shall Not Grow Old, which is the project that led to that led him to get back. In They Shall Not Grow Old, you took this dusty footage of men who fought in World War One and brought them to life. What did the technology allow you to do here with this 50 plus year old footage? And I just want to quickly touch on that. I took my dad, my dad and I, we went to go see They Shall Not Grow Old at the Alamo Draft House. And, you know, I don't know if it won an Oscar for documentary filmmaking, but it totally should have. I mean, this film was unreal. They they brought these people back from the dead. People that had been dead for a hundred years were suddenly brought to life with all of the different techniques. And after we finished watching the film, there was a half hour making of about how they had all the stuff that they had to do to get this footage to a place. I mean, you th you don't realize you have a different aspect ratio. You have a different frame rate. You have to rescan the footage. You have to clean up the footage. You sharpen the footage. You get ADR, um, you know, voiceover artists to sort of lip sync, to lip read what is being said silently. And then they're overdubbing voice actors trying to recreate the actual words that were said on silent motherfucking film. <sighs> Bringing a dead man's words back from the ether. I mean, just really, really cool stuff. Um, and so just like with how the Frighteners... The technology that they used from the Frighteners gave birth to Weta, you know, which brought them into the computing age. They went from having one computer to 32 computers, and that's how they were able to get the bid to do Lord of the Rings. And we all know what Peter Jackson went with all of that motion capture technology. I mean, he was a pioneer. Everything that that James Cameron did in Avatar, he can he can he owes to an extent, to Peter Jackson in, in some way, shape, or form. And then now he's taking that same technology and he's applying it to 50-year-old Beatles footage. And Jackson says, I had different approaches in front of me. 
I could have interviewed all these people who were there in 1969 and are here now. That would have been really cool. And I wish that he had done that. Did he do that? Maybe. He says, you got Ringo Paul, Michael Lindsay Hogg, who shot the original footage. I took the opposite approach. I didn't want that 50-year-old void to be discussed. I had always fantasized as a Beatles fan that before I died, someone would invent a time machine. And when I got my trip in a time machine, I'd go back and watch the Beatles work. This was my opportunity. So I took away the 50 years, no interviews after the fact. That's amazing. Okay, I changed, Peter Jackson has changed my mind. I actually am really glad that he didn't do 50 year interviews or interviews 50 years later. So I took away the 50 years, no interviews after the fact. It's like we're in the core of the studio watching the Beatles. That was my dream. And to bring that alive, I needed to get rid of all traces of a film. I had to clean up the 16 millimeter negative, make it sharp, make it clear, get rid of scratches. Really, you were going to take a whole curtain away and you're very much there with the Beatles. Really, you are taking the whole curtain away and you are very much there with the Beatles. They tell their own story. I let their raw conversations inform it. They're talking about what to do with the plan B, uh, what the plan B is going to be. It doesn't need a narrator. Their private conversations from 1969 are enough for us to follow the story. Okay, that's it. Wow, that was that was something else, man really cool interview and i'm glad we read it and like i said you know for whatever criticisms i may have about like what i view as revisionist history or not well I, and again like i said it's going to be revisionist um it, it's still man i'm blown away i'm so excited it's going to be fucking cool it's going to be great to see this stuff even if you're not a beatles fan i think just as like a music fan you might appreciate this sort of thing you know um, we have some comments here. I can't wait to see this. Rich, Rick, these are the comments in the Deadline article. I remember when I first heard Hey Jude over the car radio, it silenced my four siblings as my dad turned up the volume, blah, blah, blah. Um, best interview with Jackson I've read, Honest 2. Uh, read Roger Friedman's take on this below. I'm not one for revisionist history, but after reading his take, I will now watch. Hmm. Uh, I always want. I always wonder, though, if what they're really saying is not actually an accurate reflection of how they work together. That the boys were unconsciously alter their behavior in response to their awareness of being observed by the filmmaker. Over the summer, I said this very thing, and I 100% agree with Blue Blue Sterno. I think, and that's why when Jackson says, "Oh, it's really not as bad as we thought." Because they're fucking being filmed, dude. They're being filmed. They have cameras on them. It's very, it's a very tense, you know, sort of high pressure environment of trying to, you know, they have to, you know, yield results. They're spending a lot of money to make this happen. Of course, they're not going to act naturally. So whatever we're seeing is not necessarily a true, accurate representation of the Beatles in its entirety. It's some, you know, it's some like, Facsimile of it. Facsimile is that the right word? It's some uh, rough sketch of what that is, but is it the actual thing? No, I don't. No, it can't. It can never be. Can, and that, and to to an extent, that's the problem with all documentary, because when you introduce a camera, you are automatically changing the truth of the thing, no matter what. The only way to really be completely, truly raw 
is to have a hidden camera somewhere. You know what I'm saying? Rue says, Harrison was my boy. Yeah, John and Paul wrote the songs, but George had to put up with everybody's BS. He kept us cool for the sake of the music. Music, excuse me, that was the seltzer. As I, dude, Harrison wrote songs too, man. Harrison was, and Harrison was competing for songs. He finally got, you know, on the single with something. And something is the second most covered Beatles song after yesterday. So there you go. Um, Andy responds with, the impression I get is that Paul was very diplomatic and image conscious. Ringo was uh, fairly defer deferential because he was almost never one of the songwriters. But George was, by this time, very frustrated and especially sick of Paul trying to be the boss. And John was very proud of not having time for other people's bullshit. They were all very conscious of being super famous and almost worshipped. And I doubt they thought they had much to lose by being themselves at the stage. Very good points. Very good points. So yes, we all adjust to being watched by others, whether it is in front of a 7-Eleven security camera uh, or Michael Lindsay Hogg's 16 millimeter film. But I don't think they would have put over, I don't think they would have put over the negative image that Let It Be is famous for if they were making an effort at managing their behavior for the camera. Hmm. A, a very interesting counterpoint to that previous point uh and then steven responds under that a good point and i would agree quick comment too the statement about mr mccartney being able to study what other members are doing i get the point and it is interesting as jackson observes but i would have assumed that he had ample opportunity to do so prior than this because of other uh visual records or even because of opportunities in the studio recording songs Perhaps the bassist was being generous. It is of no consequence, of course, just an impression I had while reading. Enjoy the interview. Hmm. Um, yeah, that is really cool. Let's just take a look at this last thing before we go. <clears throat> We're going to look at one other... Is this a long piece? I'm not... Oh, no, it's really short. Is it? Yeah, this is short. Okay. Okay. Let's just let's just take a look at this real quick. And we'll wrap things up here. Um, one last thing to check out. This is Peter Jackson's. This is another article. Hold on. It's coming to you right here. Here. Okay, ready? Um, Peter Jackson's Beatles. This is from Showbiz 411. Uh, Hollywood to the Hudson by Roger Friedman. Peter Jackson's Beatles Get Back is a mind blower. In part one, Yoko and Linda bond. Get Back is a protest song. What? And George finds his voice. The first part of Peter Jackson's Get Back airs on Disney Plus on Thanksgiving Day. It's two hours and 37 minutes. And I just finished it and I am reeling. It's, going, it's like going back and watching Shakespeare write Hamlet and Macbeth. This takes place in 1969. The Beatles are disenchanted after the White Album and Hey Jude. They've also made Sgt. Pepper and Revolver and Rubber Soul and all the early stuff like Help, Hard Day's Night and Yesterday. Like, what now? Don't forget. When this is over, they record their masterpiece, Abbey Road, and release it before any of this stuff. 
Yes, when they made Abbey Road, the, the Let It Be songs were sitting in a vault. That is kind of crazy when you think about it. They decided to perform on uh they decided to perform live on TV for the first time in three years. It will be a documentary shot by Michael Lindsay Hogg, who's the son of actress Geraldine Fitzgerald and allegedly Orson Welles. He has taken his stepfather's surname, but if you look at him, he looks just like Wells and he's and has grandiose plans for this film. The Beatles meet at Twickenham Studios to write 14 songs in 14 days. Seriously. Which is very possible for considering that the Beatles, remember, in the years 1964 and 1965, and I think 1966 as well, the Beatles are doing a quarterly single. So that's four singles per quarter. So four singles in a year. They're releasing two LPs of 14 songs apiece. They are doing television appearances. They are touring around the world and they are shooting movies. They shot two movies in 64 and 65. They did all of this in two years. So they are definitely used to that pressure cooker mentality of coming up with material in a very short period of time. That's why 14 songs in 14 days doesn't, especially when they definitely have some kind of song idea they're going into the session with, doesn't seem entirely crazy to me. Um, the songs include Let It Be, Get Back, and The Long and Winding Road, Two Pieces by George, I Me Mine, and For You Blue. They've also got I've Got a Feeling in Two of Us, John, who is attached to Yoko with Velcro and seems checked out emotionally, brings back Across the Universe, which he wrote and recorded the year before, which he had actually, I think, started in India, or he had, he had, he had uh, uh, thought about uh, initially come up with the kernel of that in India. At the start of Paul, I mean, this is like, okay, this is a straight, um, this is a straight review of, of the foot of the whole thing at the start of part, part one, Paul and George have a famous tiff. We know what that tiff is. I'm going to play what you want me to play or wouldn't play anything at all. That's what George says. Paul's already a superstar writer. George is just coming into his own. They don't know it yet, but in two years, he will release his triple album. One of the first triple albums in all of existence. I think the only one to predate the triple album was... Actually, that's not true. The first the first double album was Frank Zappa. The second double album was The White Album, and the first triple album was All Things Must Pass, right? So in two years... He will release his triple album of hits, including My Sweet Lord, uh, followed by the concert for Bangladesh and take his place as a superstar. But now his frustrations are simmering and about to boil over. George also introduces All Things Must Pass, which will become its, a masterpiece in and of its own. He's on the verge of something thrilling. And when you see them hiss at each other, remember it was Paul who sat at George's bedside as he died 30 years later. So that's interesting. So this guy says that they hiss at each other. If you're a Beatles fan, you can't miss this film. It really, it's mind-blowing. For a while, Yoko Ono seems very annoying. She sticks herself in with the band when they're writing, or John is using her as a security pet. She reads a newspaper while the band composes Don't Let Me Down. You want to scream. But later, Paul is writing Let It Be in real time. Yoko and Linda Eastman sit and animate animately gossip yoko smiles and laughs in ways you've never seen before she and linda are yak 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 uh what what are they talking about well they each grew up in scarsdale new york 
which is also where I'm from. That's right. I too am from Scarsdale, New York. And I went to high school with where Linda Eastman went to high school. But that's interesting that that, that gets brought up in the Let It Be film. This may be when they figure it out. That's crazy. It's like finding the Holy Grail. We always assume they were enemies, not after seeing this. Uh, we watch famous songs being written out of thin air. Long and Winding Road, Another Day. Another Day gets written at this time. She came in through the bathroom window. Paul says of that one, this really happened. Did a girl really sneak in through his window? We learned that Get Back had all different lyrics and was supposed to be against the anti-immigration movement sweeping the UK courtesy of the evil Anak Powell. What? Sweet Loretta Martin came later. Lindsay Hogg suggests that this live show, which will end up being the famous rooftop concert, should uh, should be for a charity. Now, this is really funny. George poo-poos that. He says, charity begins at home. Two years later, George will lead the enormous fundraiser for Bangladesh. That money gets tied up famously uh, and also starts his Living in the Material World Foundation and became heavily associated with charity. His life completely changed. Crazy. It never really changed. Paul, listen, George George was a very charitable guy, but he was also a very materialistic guy. Maybe that's why he was so spiritual, was that he was always struggling with the material. You know, I mean, that dude had a million-dollar racing car. You know what I'm saying? His spirituality was like a way for him to sort of, you know, come to terms with who he was about himself in that kind of way, when you think about it. Um, there's a lot of tension in part one. So here, so this guy says there's a lot of tension, but then there's John and Yoko waltzing around. Remember what we talked about, about I me mine while I me mine is being written. And then Ringo says to someone as Paul plays what the future, let it be on piano. I could watch that all day or something to that effect. He has a beat, uh, a beatific look on his face. It's a startling moment of sweetness. There's so much more, and I still have five hours to watch, I think. So after all, it's not, uh, this is not just let it be. This is an extraordinarily, extraordinary, unprecedented look into this, the most important popular music group of our lives. And I do think Lindsey Hogg thought he was making his Citizen McCartney, which I'll talk about later. But if you listen carefully to what, to what's being said there are revelations upon revelations really part one comes this uh comes thursday night don't eat too much you want to stay alert for get back yeah baby i am excited i am so excited that really got me pumped up i'm glad we read that that's it guys for tonight i don't think i'm gonna be broadcasting tomorrow i think for the first time i'm not sure if we skipped a week before I don't think we're going to have an episode of streaming Evil Live this week. In lieu of streaming Evil Live, I have a special video um, documenting how we put the the Misfits, uh, erected a Misfits statue in Lodi, New Jersey. And um, this, thir this Friday, Steve Zeng, he's having his Black Friday bash. I wish I could make it. I probably will not. I'm sure going to try to. I'm shooting that day. Um, that's happening at Dingbats in Clifton, New Jersey. Go check that out. If you, if you <laughs> way to advertise that at the end of the episode, I just want to pump that up because it's charity and, you know, Steve is doing for charity. Thank you, Rue. Um, thank you. And thank you for the, the, ha the happy birthday wishes. Truly. Uh, I'll, maybe I'll see you on Friday, Rue. I'll try. I'll, I really will try and make it out there. 
going to be seeing Russell on my birthday, actually. He's uh, he's going to have Thanksgiving dinner with us, so that'll be cool. Um, but we have a nice way of closing. I'll, you know what? I'm going to end. If you are just joining the channel, please make sure to like, share, subscribe. These are all very important things. Uh, and if you enjoyed this video and you want more content or you want to support the creation of this content, check this out. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. So I've decided to make a Patreon. What is Patreon? I don't know how to define a Patreon. Let me look it up. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full-time. I want this to be my full-time job. In my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it gonna be successful? I don't know, but I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full-time, uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk and I never shut the fuck up. <laughs> so right now I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee, but it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that dollar 38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6.66. The YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube, loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind-the-scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just want to thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates that subscribes, that's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents.